Warning, the first story this week drops the F-word once. Huh? Wait, what F-word? Fetus? Fallopian? Fajita? Come on, man, can you be a little more specific? These panties ain't gonna wad themselves. Fornicate? Flapjack? Filibuster? Damn you, Sherman. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 187. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Doubleheader special for you weirdos this week. That's two different flash stories by one awesome writer. In this case, the Hugo-nominated author, publisher, cognitive psychologist, and noted Klingon language expert, Lawrence M. Schoen. But first, before we dive into whimsical worlds of fancy, let's take a look at some real news of some real things happening in the real world, with a little segment we call Drabble News. Check this. From our ridiculous reporting rivals, Fox News, a Veterans Day special. The Russian military has begun rapidly augmenting their forces with enormous blow-up weaponry. I'm not making this up. From inflatable tanks to entire freaking decoy radio stations, Moscow's going with the rubber and hot air variety of things. And hey, why the hell not? Easier to transport, easier to deploy, they look great, they're vastly cheaper than the real deal, and you could even make a little cash on the side by renting them out to kids' parties as inflatable fun jumps. Weapons activated. It's fun to obey the machine! The weapons deceptively start off as large plastic sheets shipped in a black duffel bag. Then with the assistance of little other than an air pump, an entire tank can take form in a matter of seconds, ready to roll out with just a push. According to the article in the Russian Times, Rusball, the private Russian company that makes these things, makes inflatable S-300 missiles, T-80 and T-72 tanks, and Su-27 and MiG-31 fighter jets, all life-sized and ready to be used to create entire fake military bases. The U.S., of course, never really being one to be outdone by the Ruskies, is responding in the only way it knows how. As Commander-in-Chief, I will never hesitate to defend this nation. But I will only send our troops into harm's way with a clear mission and a sacred commitment to give them the equipment they need in battle. Nerf. Face it, you're either on one end of a Nerf weapon or the other. You better think about getting yourself a bow and arrow or an XM320 grenade launcher or a Nerf missile storm or a 12-gauge modular accessory shotgun or an arrow storm. Or a very good M110 semi-automatic sniper system. Don't you get it? It's Nerf or nothing. Yes, indeed, young Devon Sawa. It is Nerf or nothing. These vehicles and machinery are cheaper to make, easier to produce in bulk, and look okay on the outside. And you folks thought it was the American government that bought out General Motors. <laughs> Zing. Fake is the new real, Washington. Don't you keep up with the Kardashians? Oh, those prodigious, maddening orbs. Those titties of night shadow. Those slippery, swollen shugoths from outside of space and time. You ought to be keeping up with them. The real world is not so rational as on paper. Oh, is that so, Mr. President? Well, try telling that to Japan and North Korea, which are quickly following suit with their origami warheads and tanks and swans. They really love making those swans for some reason. 
Isn't it just a matter of time before our global conflicts begin to look a little like this? Thank you, Norm. This is another irritating, narcissistic, silver-haired douchebag reporter filling in for Anderson Cooper, who's out sick. I'm here in the Fens of Sargath, where tensions between Russian, North Korean, and NATO forces are rising high. Prepare to die and give up your gold. Hit, minus one. Hit, minus one. Oh, defract, defract, shield of ancestors. Hit, minus one, hit, minus one. Writing bolt, writing bolt. Hey now, water elemental, plus four dexterity. Hit, hit, minus one, fireball, fireball. Oh, blood of Minotaur, minus one, hit, Blood hit. of Minotaur, no, fireball. I summoned a fireball, Kim Jong, stop it. I summoned Ragnarok. Ah, you broke my psychic arrow. Oh, come on, Putin. That's a pool noodle. I'll get you a new one. Blood of Minotaur. Minus one. Minus one hit. Yeah, shut up with your Minotaur. God. Seriously, it doesn't count. Be all that your character can be in the army. Uncle Sam's looking for a few good LARPers, people. Time to enlist. Because face it, you're either on one side of a Nerf weapon or the other. That's Euclidean physics, and that's the news. Time for a 100-word story. This week's Drabble is called Breaking News, a hard-boiled detective story, and it comes to us from Kelly Zanferdino. By day, Kelly's a strategy consultant, helping organizations make the most of their human capital investment. By night, she's a warm lap upon which her cat Ivan reclines upon while she writes fiction. Detective Rowe watched as the tech put the final piece in place and brushed the reconstructed surface with black powder, showing two perfect palm prints once the excess was softly blown away. Rowe shook his head. I'll do my preliminary report. Rowe stood in Captain Oval's office. The captain finished the report, took off his glasses, and rubbed his face with both hands. You're sure about this? He asked. Positive, said Rowe. I'll call a press conference, said Oval. Captain Oval looked out on the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain began. We have confirmation that Humpty Dumpty was pushed. I knew it. I always knew it. So our doubleheader special this week features two stories, A Fool's Death and Pigeon, both by Lawrence M. Schoen. Lawrence holds a PhD in cognitive psychology with a special focus in psycholinguistics. He spent 10 years as a college professor and his background in the study of behavior and the mind provide a principal metaphor for his fiction. He currently works as the director of research and chief compliance officer for a series of mental health and addiction treatment facilities. And he's also one of the world's foremost authorities on the Klingon language, having championed the exploration of this constructed tongue and lectured on this unique topic throughout the world. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Valerie, who is neither a psychologist nor a speaker of Klingon. Lawrence was also kind enough to record a brief author's note for each story, talking a little about his inspiration and creative processes there. You'll hear those at each story's conclusion. The stories are read to you by writer, musician, and kick-ass podcaster Phil Rossi. Phil's a New England native currently hunkered down in Northern Virginia. 
When he's not in the studio creating, he can be found either out playing rock music in the DC metro area or frolicking with any of his seven pets. I'm hoping to team up with Phil for a concert in the Baltimore area this spring. We'll keep you local folks in the loop on that. Stay tuned after the stories this week. We're going to play a promo for Crescent, Phil's badass podcast novel. Crescent's a gritty sci-fi horror mashup with a freaky dark atmosphere reminiscent of Ridley Scott's Alien. I highly recommend you give it a try. But after the main course, here of course. So let's get down to it, shall we? Without further ado, A Fool's Death by Lawrence M. Schoen. Escalator ascends, carting our entire troop up the side of the volcano, each of its 10,000 grooved steps carved from local obsidian. Two dozen of us rise toward the lip. Half are technicians, heavy with heat-resistant gear. The other half are gophers and interns and personal assistants to the executives already at the top. The handler from Fool's Death is a thin man with too much cologne. I've heard the rumors that death-powered geomancy can lead to anosmia, but it could all just be a coincidence. He's a mime, a fairly high rank in the FD necrocracy, but I guess they don't take chances with volcanoes. Somehow, he senses my scrutiny of him and turns my way. True to the mime's creed, he doesn't speak, can't offer me encouragement or heartwarming advice. Instead, he winks at me, and plucks a trio of lemons from a fruit basket one of the gophers is carrying. Dabbing the tip of his finger against the call that surrounds his eyes, he paints tiny death's heads on each lemon, deftly, like a Shinto priest painting a haiku. Then he starts to juggle them, the lemon heads of death past, present, and death future. I feel sick. Maybe it's the elevation, maybe the rhythmic and minimalistic jerking of the escalator, maybe it's the heat. When we finally reach the landing, my mime slips his motley-garbed arm through mine and, still juggling the lemons one-handed, leads me to the railing and introduces me to the geomancer, an old woman with a weak chin and faint mustache. She mutters an introduction, dabs my forehead with some ointment, and moves away to finish her preparations. I turn toward the heat, the air rippling, and I get my first glimpse of the lava-filled caldera. On the far side of its bubbly ooze, a crowd has gathered to watch my suicide. None of them look like locals. They're here for the spectacle of my death-powered geomancy. They're not the people my death will help. Bastards. I can hear a ringing suddenly, a disconnected, jangling kind of sound, and it's a good minute before I realize it's coming from me. The two-toned, three-pointed cap I'm wearing has bells sewn into it. I'm trembling, ringing with fear. The mime's hand is in mine, his fingers writhing, spelling something against my palm, like I'm Helen fucking Keller. I haven't a clue what he's trying to tell me. I turn and stare at him and slip up. What are you saying? I ask, and his eyes pop wide, wider than any mime's game. I can see real fear. His head swivels and he starts to sob. 
I follow his gaze to one of the cameras aimed right at us and his red light winking out too late. Seconds later, guild cops are hauling us both away. A backup suicide is already on the way up. Hours later, my handler's been iced, indicted on four different counts of verbal, non-oral variety, communication while on duty as a mime. His employers at Fool's death sever all possible electronic ties to him, purging the miscreant almost entirely from their records before the stain can sully their reputation as the industry's leader. I'm charged with aiding and abetting after the fact, but the charges vanish like the mime's employment history, so much static in the system. An FD junior vice president waits for me when I'm released, garbed like a pinstriped harlequin in a coat and a tie. His gold tie bar has a tiny image of himself juggling even tinier pearls. Mr. Culver, I'm Josh Harmony. Would you come with me, please? We are terribly sorry about this incident. I can't begin to apologize enough. Your guide has been under an inordinate strain. It happens sometimes. A fool rises through the ranks too quickly. Not everyone can handle the stress of miming, you know. This was his first week. Oh, you didn't know? Well, that's a testament to how talented he was, I suppose. <laughs> but yes, he'd just been promoted up from 8th level jester. Too much, too fast, I suspect. But yes, as I was saying, we are terribly sorry. To make amends, we've upgraded your demise. Top of the line, Mr. Culver, top of the line. Nothing as common as volcano sacrifice. Now, if you'll just come with me, there's a helicopter waiting to take us to the airport where we can catch a plane to Finland. There's a rogue iceberg with your name on it waiting for us. An iceberg? They're the first words I've spoken to the man, and he nods enthusiastically by reply. He hands me a beautiful parka, functional but festooned with myriad bright silk ribbons at the collar and sleeves. The Fool's Death logo has been embroidered on the back with gleaming metallic thread. The VP loops his arm through mine and hauls me off like I'm the embodiment of that poem by Robert Frost, the one about the end of the world. And it is the end of the world. The end of my world, anyways. I suppose an iceberg will be better. At least I won't have to wear those stupid bells. A Fool's Death actually didn't start out as a story. It was a writing exercise I was doing with another author from uh, a workshop I'm in, uh, Kathy Petrini, uh, author of more than two dozen YA books, uh, Sweet Valley High, Sweet Valley College. I think she even wrote Nancy Drew, and, and a phenomenal author. And yet she's never been able to write short fiction. And we had a project we wanted to work on together, and to get her in the mood for writing short fiction, uh, we p made up a list of, I think, half a dozen random words, things like escalator and juggler and so forth, and each had the assignment to write a short story using all of those words. Uh, I wrote A Fool's Death, and then the project sort of stalled and, and it didn't really go anywhere, and there I was with this writing exercise, and I just sort of, on a whim, sent it off to uh, the editor at Abyss and Apex, who snapped it up. 
And that's kind of disconcerting, you know, as, as an author, you, you work and toil and revise and revise and revise again on, on other stories and send them out and they come back. Oh, well, this is nice, but it's not what we're looking for and so forth. And this little writing exercise sent off on a whim, um, <laughs> sold to the first market it went to. So there you go. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that, but, um, your guess is as good as mine. I hope you enjoy the story. Pigeon by Lawrence M. Schoen Nathan glanced up at the clock when the alien entered his shop. It was just past noon, too early for aliens. He sighed. It was going to be one of those days. Within seconds of its arrival, the alien tightly pulled in its vicious blue facial tentacles to create the appearance of a handlebar mustache. A slimy blue mustache at that. It shuffled up to the front of the shop on dozens of its tiptoes and came to rest with its elbows on the counter, dropping a foot in height in the process. Good day, said the alien in warm, rounded tones and a slight New England accent. Good day, replied Nathan. He was born and raised in Los Angeles and so used to the comings and goings of aliens, at least as much as one can get used to the monsters that look like they came from a Lovecraft novel and sound like they come from Harvard. I wish to purchase some fruit. Fruit. Yes, I would like two apricots, an apple, a bunch of seedless grapes, and a coconut. I'm sorry, sir or, or ma'am, but this is a hardware store. We don't sell fruit. Ah, oh, I'm sorry, said the alien. Perhaps you did not understand me. I will say it again in French. I wish to purchase some fruit. I should like a banana, half a watermelon, an orange, and two nectarines. How much will that be, s'il vous plaît? One end of its false mustache twitched, and it elongated a tentacle to reach into the folds of its satin robe and bring forth a credit stick. Okay, first, that's not French, you're still speaking English, and second, that's not what you asked for the first time, and third, this is still a hardware store and you can't get any fruit here. The alien set the credit stick down on the counter, leaning to one side as it raised up one of its elbows and used its dainty, tyrannosaur-like forelimbs to smooth its tentacle back into place. This is most distressing, it said. I had been informed that English was the preferred tongue in this location, but I am well prepared. I have mastered several dozen of your world's languages. I will try again in Arabic. I wish to purchase some fruits. I would like an avocado, three kumquats, a pound of strawberries, and a durian. That's to go. Look, pal, I don't know what your problem is. Hell, I don't know what your species is, but this ain't a frickin' fruit stand. It's a hardware store, and you're not speaking Arabic. You're still talking to me in English. And you still don't know what it is you want fruit-wise because you've asked for something completely different once again. You are a very, very rude clerk, said the alien. 
I think I know when I'm speaking one of your myriad miserable languages, and I would appreciate it if you could manage to wait upon me with considerably less attitude. Now, you are apparently an extremely dense representative of your planet's allegedly dominant life form, so I will try again and speak more slowly in the native Cantonese of your ancestors. I wish to purchase some fruit. I should like a lemon, two grapefruit, some blackberries, and a pear, preferably a Bartlett if you have it. Nathan fumed. Cantonese-speaking ancestors? He was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Californian native. What was it thinking? Aliens were just so thick-headed and superior. Sure, many of them were benevolent and shared their technological advances, but this one was dumb as a post. Look, you're not getting it. I sell hardware, okay? Not food. You need some pipe fittings, I'm your man. You want to get some caulking, I've got you covered. Painting supplies, no problem, but it's all hardware, okay? No fruit. The alien's attempt at a mustache faded as it began twiddling its facial tendrils in a manner suggesting exasperation or the need to find a restroom. I don't understand why you're being so difficult, it said. I shall try once more, and this time perhaps I will have more luck with Hindustani. I wish to purchase some fruit. Oh, Nathan said, slapping his palms on the counter. Hindustani, of course, now I understand. Hold on, I have just what you need. He darted out from behind the counter, down one aisle of the store and up another, grabbing several items as he went. When he returned behind the counter, he began placing merchandise in front of the alien. Tell me if I have this right. You want fruit, yes? A cantaloupe, three guavas, a pineapple, and a lime, right? He pointed to the assortment on the countertop. A pipe wrench, three rolls of electrical tape, a dry cell battery, and a small bucket of spackle. The alien gave off a sudden odor, a not unpleasant combination of smoked meat and burning leaves. Oh my, yes, that's it exactly. Thank you. Could you bag that up for me? And how much do I owe you for the fruit? Nathan scanned each item, glanced at the total on his cash register, and moved the decimal points one place to the right. One hundred twenty-six dollars and forty cents. He picked up the alien's credit stick, jammed one end into his register, and pulled it back out. If you'll just confirm the purchase for me, you'll be all set. He stuffed the merchandise into a small plastic bag, eyed the heavy wrench, and double-bagged the whole order. The alien brought the credit stick up to its face, eyed the amount showing on the side in glowing numerals, and triggered acceptance of the transaction. Nathan's register made a pinging noise. Thank you, you've been most helpful. Please accept my apologies if I seemed a bit tense before. As a visitor here myself, it's easy to forget how many different language communities coexist in Los Angeles. But be assured, I have several acquaintances whose command of Hindustani is almost as excellent as my own, and I shall encourage them to make all their purchases here. Good day. With its business complete, the alien turned on its many tippy-toes and skittered out the door, clutching its bag of fruit. Tourists, said Nathan, and went back to work. Pigeon kind of revisits, with a science fiction twist, uh, 
a rather old and dumb uh, joke, actually. Um, the punchline of which, of, of course, is, this is a hardware store. And it's rather ra- a rather racist joke, uh, the way it's usually told, and that wasn't going to fly. Uh, so I wanted to play with that aspect of it a little bit. It's not a deep story, uh, <laughs> but I think it's a fun story. And it was a very popular thing for me to read at conventions uh, for about a year. So it's, it's had its run. Let me know what you think. Well, that was our double header. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, consider chucking a donation our way. Keep the weekly content coming at you strong. This show is run completely off the support of weirdos such as yourself. Your donation pays authors for their creative work, amongst other necessary costs. I think that's a pretty cool way to use your green paper. If you visit our site, drebblecast.org, you'll see a couple support options. Donate once in any amount, or have an automatic monthly subscription take care of all the work for you. We've got a 5 bucks a month and a 10 bucks a month option. You could be cool. Just like this week's kick-ass donor of the week, Nathan Lee. Nathan's a swell guy. You've heard several of his Drabbles on the show, and you've heard me plug the prolific top-notch Drabble work that he does on his website, mirrorshards.org. Nathan says he's got a lot of RPG books and board games that he rarely gets to use, and that it's lonely being a gamer in Charlotte, North Carolina. So if you're listening and you're in the Charlotte area, get in touch. Geek out with Nate. Thanks for supporting the Drabblecast, Nathan. Nathan Lee. It's with not Shokmok. Because That was The Klingon Praises Nathan for being a great listener and honors him. Courtesy of Dr. Shone himself. How awesome is that guy, huh? And speaking of awesome, here's that Crescent promo. The past never dies. It only sleeps. In a solitary station on the fringe of known space, the past is beginning to stir. And when it wakes, Crescent Station will be as the belly of the beast. You call your father and you tell him there's something very wrong with this ship. Panic spoke up full now and it said, Scream for your life, bitch! So Marissa screamed, We can't save her! We were wrong! We were wrong! We have to leave! Crescent, a podcast novel by Phil Rossi. For more information, please visit www.crescentstation.net. Jerry, I think there's someone in here. Some places are far darker than deep space. www.crescentstation.net Also check out the philrossiexperience.com And to keep the pluggage going, still got my CD promotional going on. Two for ten bucks, one of them signed, the other one good to go as a gift or backup copy or coaster, weapon, whatever you want it to be. Hit the two for ten button on the Drabblecast site to get hooked up. So, each week we pick a hundred character story, we call them Twabbles, written by someone in our discussion forums as a weekly winner. We send it out on Twitter, read it on the show. This week's winner was written by Liz Pennies. And here it is. 
Every channel the same. Nothing but people watching people watch the television. Reality shows had truly gone too far. Soon it'll be nothing but nerf, folks. Think you can write a great story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot, post it in our discussion forums, join the fun, or at least the collective procrastination and boredom resolution. It's good times. All right, folks, that's our show. Remember, it's produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes or wherever we may pick up new listeners. Help spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Brent Holmes, truly capturing the horror of mimes. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, an old woman with a faint mustache, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, if you need some pipe fittings, I'm your man. <laughs>